I would love to. I know I just started. And it's like, look at my entitled fuck ass. And it's like, Beyonce never took no goddamn break. And that's why she's the fuck Beyonce. Sure didn't. How bad do you want this, Courtney? Smack yourself. How bad do you want this? Look at me, all you little fuck ass artists. How dare we? Who the fuck do we think we are? We've been in this industry for what? Two seconds? One year and a half? We just fucking started blowing up yesterday? And you already talking about breaks? Retirement? Bitch! You're 28! 25! You're 20! Who are we? Entitled, disgusting ass chocolate fox! Sublime Podcast. This is your host, Mr. Habadashi, aka ALS White, aka I'm in that new new. That new new. I mean, even though I'm not in shit I don't have any money, but but kind of like on theme, new new. Um Welcome, I miss y'all and I hope y'all are doing well this week. You know, I am I had a good weekend. Um I was kind of like in a little, I'm not going to say a funk because it isn't a funk, but I'm just writing really personal and intimate things for the show and just for this new album and everything. And I've just kind of been in that bag. So I did, I was pretty low key, but I did go out Saturday and it was at a good ass time. I danced so hard, I danced like seventh grade dance type of T-shirt sweaty, everything all just gross, but it was at a really good time, so I'm I'm, I'm ready for y'all. Um, last, we, I opened with the Queen, you know Ari Lennox. I, this is basically an Ari Lennox podcast. I mean, honestly, like if we're just gonna just be honest with what I'm giving y'all, with what I'm serving y'all on a consistent basis, this is an Ari Lennox podcast. Um, and I posted it because, well, I used it because. Um, it relates to a bit of my perspective on coming out. And last week I posted, this is probably going to be a short podcast too, because I just wanted to talk about this one thing and I don't want to sort of, I want to give this space to breathe, not just because it's important to me, but because it's personal. I just didn't want to like saturate up the whole bunch of other content, but, um, yeah, so last week I posted about coming out because it was National Coming Out Day. And, you know, essentially what I said, because I don't remember what I said, um, I was just talking about how coming out, although it feels like, you know, a declaration himself, it's really an, an it's also an invitation in for people in the community and in your life or whatever. And when I posted that, I thought, you know, maybe I should really detail um, or, or talk about, I'm not sure about detail, but um, talk about my coming out story and just my perspective on it and, you know, my personal struggles with it and all of that. So that's what I'm doing. And I, I mean, I really 
one, I hope that, you know, y'all feel a little closer to me or, like, you know a little bit more about my life. Um, as a result, like, obviously it'd be dope if it inspires someone to do something, but if not, it's okay. Um, so we're going to rewind all the way back to... Well, I guess I should just say the truth. Like, I never formally came out. Like, I never sat anybody down and was like, girl, I have something to tell you. Mom, I have something to tell you. The girls are out here. Like, I never had, I never gave that moment to anybody. Um, I literally one day decided that I was just going to be public with my life um, and just say, oh, there's this boy, or maybe talk about it or not, but if I'm going to a gay club, just go. People ask me what I'm doing, I say that, and I just do it. Like, whatever I wanted to do, I just did it. And I remember thinking, and I'll get into this more, but I remember being like, you know, you have, you will not survive if you don't live publicly. You will die. You will die and no one will know why you are dead. Um, and I, that's how I thought about it. And I'll sort of get into why. But it was just like, yo, you have to live. And yes, people might not accept you. And... That would be, that's okay, but you have to be willing to pay that price. So I went through a lot of, by the time I came to that decision of just like, you know, one day I'm just going to be me, it was really me saying I'm willing to pay, I'm willing to pay the ultimate price for the opportunity to live. And by the ultimate price, I mean family not fucking with me. You know, little sister not fucking with me. I mean, I thought she was fucking me. But you know what I mean? Like, you never know. Like, in my mind, I was like, I have to be willing to be absolutely and utterly, brutally alone um, in this world. And if that's, the, if that's what I have to do, if I have to pay that price just for the ability to... Um, live and be myself and be some kind of whole because well yeah like I said I'll get into that in a minute but to be whole and to be complete as complete as I can be um I will pay it so that was my mentality and I kind of came to that conclusion I would say freshman year of college but it was kind of leaking into my... Like, I had been thinking about this and gathering this perspective um, for probably, probably since I was 16. So I would say like the summer after junior year um, and I guess until I went to college or whatever. And, you know... A lot of this came from being in New York. So go back to 06, um, which was nowhere near as bad as 96. I mean, obviously, but um, still, like, you know, I was kind of 
experimenting, going out to some clubs. Like, there used to be teen nights in New York. I don't know if they exist anymore. But, you know, if you... Back then, they weren't really carding people in the gay community. Back then, you know, you could get into a Chi-Chi's on Christopher Street. You can get into uh, a Secrets on, on, you know, on in Chelsea. You can kind of get into these places with, you know, a smile and, like, some shit. Like, you know, it wasn't really that deep. But I remember Chi-Chi's and The Hanger being first. For me, um, were they first? No, I think Langston was first, but anyway, um, but being one of the first places, and not because I was able to like get in, but really because of Christopher Street and me going on, you know, going on Christopher Street and seeing well, walking to the ends of it to the pier and seeing homeless people that were my age um, for the first time. And I had never seen that. I think, you know, I've seen a whole lot of fucking homeless people. A lot of us have seen homeless people. And I've seen homeless children, you know, a lot of the time, like, you know, you will see there have there are some homeless people that really bring their kids on to, like, the subway platform and, you know, use their kids to get more money. And I had seen that. But there was just something about seeing black and brown, like, queer kids that were still living. And I don't want to speak about it like, you know, if you're homeless, you're not living. But still laughing, still dancing, still trying to find joy and happiness um, and community in this under the pier or, like, the boardwalk and stuff like that. And I was kind of shaken to my core a bit because, you know, you have these kids that have paid this price. You know, I mean, a lot of times, not willingly. I mean, no, they didn't just walk out their homes, but, you know, parents kicked them out, family kicked them out, um, found out that they were gay somehow or, you know, trans somehow and kicked and forced them into homelessness. And yet these kids are still finding something. Like, there's, I mean... You know, obviously, there's a lot of sex work there, and it was, you know, that's kind of when I first started thinking about, like, protecting yourself in a sexual capacity, not just, like, I'm saying condoms, but dealing with people that might hurt you. You know, there was one person who told me never to go to somebody's house, even though I've broken that rule several times, but it's, you know. But at that age, he was like, don't go to nobody's house, you know, because there was BGC, you could go online and meet guys. And he's like, don't go, because they say it's just one, but it can be many. And he had all these stories. And I was just like, you are fully my age, though. Like, telling me all of this, telling me all the danger that you've encountered. And, you know, it resonated with me because of how I grew up as a dad, what my teenage years were like, you know. Like, I obviously had a warm family and, you know people that supported me but at the same time I mean I was having to go to my friend's house to get food you know there was not food in my home sometimes I was not you know there were times where I was not being fed by folks and slept on couches for years I mean I mean 
at least four. You know, I four years of my life I spent on couches. So when I met these people that kind of understood my situation and were confused about how I could have my situation with all the privilege that I had, I was like, y'all are paying the ultimate price for being who you are, and I'm sitting here quiet about my life, you know what I mean, about who I am, and I just felt, you know, it was one of those perspective, it gave me a perspective that empowered me, um, but then the summer after, after junior year, I met this guy, actually I was introduced to this guy who is like a allegedly a talent agent who had worked with all these people and when I met him he was you know well when I was introduced to him I went to his office in the New Yorker um in the New Yorker hotel in the daytime we had all these kids that were queer but of course you know that's the problem not that's the problem like when you're in the closet and they were we were all young we were all in the closet or you know none of us it's like you clocked it but you didn't say anything you know, you clocked it, you were like, but you, you know, you were so afraid about your life and your truth that you did not seek that community. So, and I didn't think anything of it. Like, he was saying that some of the kids that he met, he was saying that there's talent everywhere, there's so many, like, kids and, you know, that are homeless potentially, but they're so talented. And some of these people here, you know, were homeless, but, you know, he was able to help them and give them, you know, all this thing. And I was like, oh, that's sweet. You know, that's sweet. That's nice. Whatever. So he asks me to do an audition for him later, um, which, you know, obviously, girl, I mean, I should have known by that, that already. Right. So I, I go back later in the evening um and he's like oh you know i mean i felt i was okay i felt really comfortable no red flags and then he puts his hand on my shoulders which isn't really that an aggressive action but in my soul i knew you know in my soul i knew and i think it's you know i at that time, I was doubting my instincts, at, you know, because I was like, it could be trauma, you know, it could be trauma from other things, like from when I was younger. So let me, let me, you know, chill out. Don't well out. I continue to like perform or whatever. And long story straight, he does try to put his hands down my pants. Granted, so I'm 16 at this time. I'm much older than I was before. I was able to, like, jump up, push him, you know, not quite push him up, but distance myself. And, you know, at the time, though, in the moment, I was afraid for my life a bit because he was much bigger than me. I mean, 6'4", 250, like, I'm in this place that I don't know. Right, right. This is right after somebody, like, if you think about what I said previously, like, someone just told me not to go to niggas' houses, but regardless. So I went, I was in said niggas' house, um, who was allegedly a talent agent, had all these kids that I'd seen, and I saw it, he was trying to do and then it all made sense to me that he 
was taking these um you know this, this, these disadvantaged kids in who were talented who had dreams um and giving them shelter in the New Yorker hotel right through the through the guise of his office and he had money so I'm sure they were living some of them living in the hotel um you know and sleeping with them all of them underage Right, all of them, because I was the oldest one there, and I was turning. I was not seven. I was not seventeen. But well, I'm the oldest. I'm, I'm, I'm lying. There was some kid who was like eighteen or nineteen, but a lot of them were fourteen to sixteen. And you're doing this to all these black kids as an older sort of black man, and I was just like, you know, it riled me on a lot of levels, but. What pissed me off, I guess, the most in that moment was that the other kids know. Like, when they saw me enter the room in the daytime, they knew. Everybody knows what's going on, but it's the closetedness, it's the fear. Granted, I mean, I'm not blaming them because we're the kids and it's a scary, all of this is scary and traumatic. And, you know, I can't imagine what it's like to have literally been sleeping outside. Like, you know, so... What you know, there's no blame to the kids, but it is kind of like my closetedness is what allowed that to. It was the invitation, and granted, only because I had the experience of having been assaulted in the past was I able to like identify it, and the work that I had done on myself and all of that allowed me to get out of it. But I realized that. People will exploit me. They will exploit me for for this secret. So I like you know wrestled with that, and then the year after is when I really started to deal with the sexual assault, like the first one that I had when I was younger, and really you know focused on healing that for you know for the my senior year of high school. And then I graduate, and I work because I obviously needed to work to be able to go to college and save money and things like that. I get to school, and the perspective of this university and of the people that were there, I kind of realized. I remember telling one of my best friends, like that, you know, this school is not a real place. And she would just laugh. And I realized that none of the things that I had seen or talked about or none of the things that I had seen or talked with or like the level that I had been privy to of suffering and perseverance and exploitation, like none of these things are common experiences. You know, a lot of people don't even have the under imagination for this. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I thought like, you know, all of these things were kind of commonplace. Like people knew what time it was. And I realized that they didn't. And obviously there is something unique to me about my perspective, about like what I gleaned from these situations is something that I would glean with the way that I think. So you know, there is credit to me there, but a lot of it was just the environment that I've been exposed to and the way life unrolled or developed, sorry, for me um, to give me access to these experiences. And then when I thought about it all, I was like, yo, 
Look at how look at what happens when you are closeted. Look at what could have happened to you in that hotel room. You know, thank God he wasn't violent, right? But who knows? You were you put yourself in a situation obviously for you love music, you love acting at the time, you like you love this, so there was it's complicated. But he sensed your closetedness, closetedness and the and that silence puts you in danger. And you on some level on some level wanted this moment. And like I don't want to say it like that because it sounds fucked up or it sounds like I'm, you know, sort of angry at myself and I'm definitely not. But when when you live in a space of self-denial, so when you deny yourself pleasure, deny yourself love, deny yourself, you know, any kind of, any other things that you need. And this is what happens for a lot of people that are in the closet. Like, we deny ourselves a chance. And when you live in a place where you deny yourself all of this love and all of this, like, affection, somebody can come along with something poisonous and you will take it. You will take it because you have been, you have denied yourself for so long that something comes along and you are desperately clinging to something that will end your life. You know, and this is what, it's kind of like, you know, if you starve a dog or something like that and then offer them a poisonous apple, they're not going to say no. I mean, I said dog and not apples, but you see what I'm saying? Like, it's not... That hunger and that starvation will lead you to accept something that will end your life. And I realized that I could not do that. I could not do that. And I will pay all, I will pay any price to not be in that situation. So that's what I, that's the mindset that I was in. And then it was kind of just like, fuck everybody who don't support me. And I'm sure I'll be fine because, you know, this is not... I, I can ride. I can take care of myself. I've been doing it. Luckily, obviously, everyone supported. Everyone was kind um, to me. So I start living my life. And it's great. Like, you know, I'm able to go out with my friends. And when I'm tired of going out with my straight friends, I go out by myself and experience the world and make party friends excuse me, make party friends and able to recognize some people when I do go out and, you know, feel some modicum of safety and community in the party scene and meet some guys and be a hoe and discover sort of my sexuality, not just sexual orientation, but how my sexual energy moves and collaborates with my spirituality and my body and form and stuff. And it's great. Like, graduate from, by the time I graduated from school, everyone kind of accepted I shouldn't even say accepted me for who I was because that's really an understatement. I mean, and I'm even shouldn't say by the time I graduated, literally kind of like as soon as I embodied this energy, everyone rocks with it for the most part. And it was great. I graduate from school and it was kind of like... I loved the unapologeticness of my approach. But I was starting to feel like 
my friends or the community that I had grown up with and that I loved, like family, didn't know me or didn't rock with me in the way that I thought. Like, and it wasn't like they were rejecting me, but it didn't quite feel like they were in this with me. And, you know, I talked about it and I, and I've said, I, invited my friends out with me and stuff like that and you know some of them came and some of them did not and you know I started to realize a couple of things about self-love and seeking acceptance versus seeking tolerance and that there all of these words are nuanced and there's a difference between some people a lot of people love gays and love queer energy as long as it's distant from them or as long as it's disguised or dressed up as entertainment. You know, there's not... It takes special... It takes a certain type of liberated mind to be like, I'm going to be in this queer experience with you as a friend and family and brother and sister and like that is something that I learned with time and it helped me sort of combat the loneliness that I was feeling and then obviously I start to expand my own palette in terms of what I wanted out of out of coming out, right? I mean, community is greater than a party scene. It's greater than, you know, a lot of times what we think, what is sold to us as the queer scene is always shrouded in party or like, you know, <laughs> described in terms of party and club and dance and glitter and and really the others, the deeper, I shouldn't say deeper because I don't want to trivialize the turn up, but the art, the spirituality, the brotherhood, sisterhood, womanhood, all the, the other aspects of humanity are left to the side. And a lot of times, you know, when you want to see, when you want to experience a queer, like, fellowship, it could be difficult if you are, if you only have established a community in the turn up. So then these other desires started to come up from something more. And then I kind of felt like there was a, a need to come out again. To really come out as someone who is serious about a queer identity. So not just loving... Um, oh, I forgot to say politics when I was saying art, spirituality, politics. As not someone who just liked dick. And that's when I just want, you know, you know, boy cakes. Like, someone who, who thinks about things in this context that is, um, I'm going to say progressive, but that's really shorthand for what I mean, and I don't want to go into that right now. Um, but that's serious about liberation and is really serious about people's... Um, capacity to free themselves, especially in an erotic context. 
So there was a desire to come out again or to just start living my life again. So I took the same approach that I took before, but I just started afresh. Like, woke up one day and I was like, this is my politic. This is who I am. Fuck y'all. I don't need to be your friend if you, you know, just had that energy. Obviously, people rolled with me, you know, but then the group got even smaller and smaller and smaller, which naturally happens as you age. Um, but then I would say I realized that, yes, that's, this is the truth about queer identity, the truth about certain politics, the truth about getting older, the truth about a lot of these things are experiences that everybody has, queer or not, you know, black or not, whatever. And then there's a lot of this that a lot of people have that are queer. So that's a special. That's especially true to all gay, all LGBTQ people with coming out. But then there's an aspect of it that is my fault, or that is that I have accountability for. And I think when you, I think when I just decided to live. Just decided to just be myself and fuck everybody else. It didn't let people feel like they were invited into my life. You know, I didn't call people in. I didn't invite people in. And that's the other side of coming out that people that I underestimated. You know, I didn't see any value in having a Facebook status saying, girls, you know, I'm one of the girls. I, first of all, I don't even like Facebook. I didn't like it then. You know, um, I didn't, you know, that was, I didn't see any value in that. And I still don't, you know, well, I do now that I know in the context of calling people or, you know, inviting people in. But, I am the kind of person that would rather just be honest in my art and be honest in my in my action um, and not have these conversations, not force myself to do the extra work that privileged people don't have to do of declaring self. But what I what I missed was that that step is really a beautiful moment or even be the foundation of a community that's really, really there for you, that's really, um, that really wants to partake in a rich qualitative experience of what it means to be you, you know? Um, And I underestimated that. And I guess I should, I don't know, like I wrote on my Facebook, I was like, do I regret it? Should I regret it? Is it something that, I mean, I acknowledge that there's accountability that I, for there, but I don't really know what else I, I, I don't know what else I would have done given the experiences that I had and the resources that I had at the time. But I will, I guess, you know, if there was any advice that I would pass on. I guess really that's what I mean. It's not quite regret, but it is something for the younger people to do better than me. You know, like I would want them to learn from my experience and be like, you know, coming out is also an opportunity to establish community amongst your community that already exists. Um, And how I connect this all to Ari, you know, she was saying about, I mean, I wouldn't call it entitlement. I wouldn't even call it, 
you know, the way that she was describing it, it was obviously funny, and she was talking about music. But I thought about, it was my encountering not just other queer kids my age, but thinking about the, the black queer community of the 90s, meeting older men. I mean, I had met, I, and I told this joke on this podcast about this older guy who had five kids and told me that he had just tried women once, but he was, then I found out that he's like previously married and all of this stuff. And I'm like, there are smooth 45-year-olds that are so afraid to, to, um, to come out and that still lie about themselves. And there are people that I know, I mean, people, and not in my family, but in like friends of family that lost their parents. Their parents didn't talk to them until, and not even in death that they talked to their parents. Like, you know, like I felt like if you consider the weight of my queer ancestry, if you will, or my elders, like what they have gone through, it was like, boy, you better just live. You better live because you don't, you don't know. And there's this book, there are two memoirs, and I'm going to end on this, and I think I might have mentioned it before. They're both by this white guy, but I really love it. I mean, to me, this one of the best things I've ever read. Um, one is Becoming a Man by Paul Monette, and the other one is Borrowed Time by Paul Monette. But, you know, when you think about the HIV and AIDS crisis of the 90s, he writes a lot about his experience with it. And it's just like, oh, we really, really, really have to live. Like, so I want to have the younger generation remember that unapologetic or be unapologetic in the context of what their ancestry is, but also to remember to um, call the ones that you love and, and create an avenue for them to participate honestly. Um, Honestly, without exploiting yourself, obviously. Um, but that's it for me, girls. I'm gonna be late, but I have to go. I love y'all. I love y'all. I love y'all, and I'll talk to you next week. Can you me? Can you me? Can you me?